Good morning, church. How are you? You look fantastic, each and every one of you. I'm so glad uh, to see you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Our current series is Strange Encounters, where we've spent some time looking at the more bizarre passages of Scripture and how it points to Jesus and how it encourages us and um, how it points to the nature of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about Elisha and the two bears. It's a great sermon. And last week, we talked about, wait, was Elisha last week? Last week was Jacob wrestling with God, yeah? The great sermon. Really good. That preacher was on fire. Fire. Uh, today, we're going to read a strange, strange passage of scripture and there are all kinds of responses to this block of text that we see from different people Um, alan ross a biblical scholar says the present section of genesis has been the subject of debate for centuries most scholars consider it to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the pentateuch (laughs) kenneth matthews A scholar says, unquestionably, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. Every verse is the source of exegetical difficulty. So that's what we're going to chat about today. The most difficult passage in the first five books of the Bible, many claim. Uh, It's one of the most debated books in the Bible. Uh, There are three major viewpoints of this text that date back to before Jesus Christ. Think about that. The Jewish Septuagint, the Jewish scholars debated these eight verses before Jesus was even born. So we are stepping into a trend of controversy. How many of you here today think that Uh, Pastor Trey is going to set the record straight this morning. Well, you have the gift of faith. Because that would be a miracle on the level of immaculate conception. I'm not going to set the record straight. Something that has been debated since pre-Jesus. But what I am going to do is I'm going to list the several opinions. I have an opinion myself on the matter. Um, I'm not going to tell you my opinion on the matter. I'm going to let you decide. You can work that out with the Holy Spirit because it's, it's not anything that's going to keep you in or out of heaven. Uh, and in fact, I've changed my position twice in the last two years on the matter. So again, you're free to choose. There isn't a, you know, a, a worst option. You can work it out with Holy Spirit. I just need you to know about it. But what I really want to do is just get to the main idea of this text. I want us to be able to apply it to our life and where we're going because it's an encouragement to us. You can leave today encouraged on a piece of scripture that for millennia, no one has been able to settle on. Are you ready? Can we do that? Can we dive in? We're going to not dig through every interpretive element. We're going to fly high today as we go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. 
when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were hot, attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, some translations say giants, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The rest of Genesis 6, 7, and 8 goes on to tell another strange encounter called the Flood, which I believe literally happened on planet Earth. It's not allegorical. It's not symbolic. It's a literal story, but but just before we see the story of Noah, we see this story of sons of God who are attracted to daughters of men. They get as many wives as they want. They mate and they create Nephilim, translated giants or fallen ones. The Bible says that man was so evil, they thought of nothing else but evil in their hearts. And God said he regretted making you and I. He wanted to destroy it all. But Noah, Noah was found to have favor, 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 unmerited favor. Sounds like we're headed toward grace. Noah, a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hmm. What an incredible block of text. We can all probably see why it's so controversial. We've got giants and sons of God and, and daughters of men. And what does all of this mean? We're going to talk about it this morning. But first, let me tell you the title of my text because it's pretty exciting. The Life Cycle of Judgment. Welcome to church. For those who would like to have something a little less heavy, another title that will work, How Love Works. Father, we come before you today. I thank you for this time. I ask that you would help us to enter into the study of your word, for this is truth. This is history recorded by Moses through your spirit. This is no small thing. I pray it would be profitable to your people that it wouldn't be an exercise in intellectualism, but we would be challenged, convicted, and built up. In the name of Jesus, I pray, let the church say, amen. Amen. 
All right, so I have told you the last couple of weeks that there is a reason for everything in the Old Testament. I'm saying it over and over and over so that you hopefully will get it. Does anyone remember what is the purpose of the Old Testament? The purpose of the sacred scriptures is to... Great, three people. That's okay. Um, Everyone else was just waiting to see if you knew it. The purpose of the Old Testament is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That means that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything that the Jews were experiencing in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all of the books of the Bible point to one thing. A Messiah is coming. And hopefully when that Messiah would come, they would have lived the stories and participated in the feasts and the festivals so much that it just, it clicked. It was like second nature, like, oh, we've lived this before. The Messiah is here. The Old Testament always, always points to Jesus. Now that you've got that down, at least the three of you, you're ready to move on for a second reason for the Old Testament. It's not a different reason, it's the first reason rephrased. And we see that in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus so that you might have hope. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus so that you might have hope. Hope. Not so that you may realize how sinful you are. Not that you may realize how far away from God you are. But so that you might have hope. God is the original hope dealer. As we look in these verses in God's word, um, I just want to point out again that our reason for looking at scripture is not so that we can have a more accurate historical view of what happened on planet earth before the flood. The goal is to see something bigger, something deeper, so that we might see Jesus, so that we might have hope, okay? We might have hope. The, The scriptures speak of a time, of the time of Noah as being somewhat an example of what the days might look like in the latter days, the end of days, the pre-apocalyptic days, right? Jesus makes the comment that as it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the end of days. So it would probably do us all well to know what the days of Noah look like so that when it circles back around, we might can recognize the time is drawing near. The end of days are drawing near. Near Matthew 24, 37, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. In addition, 2 Peter chapter 3 speaks of the fact that the world once destroyed by water, the flood, will someday be destroyed again. You know, when we look back at Noah's flood, it was so significant because it was the first time in human history, in the history of all creation, that one thing happened all around planet Earth at the same time with one purpose. 
God said he was going to destroy it all through the flood. But then we know in 2 Peter that there's coming a day, and it's not now, but it's coming a time when the world is going to be destroyed by not water, but fire. Right? The Australians a couple years ago thought maybe this was the day because almost all of Australia was on fire. If you're from California or some of the hotter states, and the, the, maybe Arizona, the fires begin. You think, could this be the time? Could this be the end? Listen, when God destroys the earth by fire, there will be no mistaking it for anything else. It will be obvious that the creator of heavens and earth is destroying the earth by fire. We understand from Peter that the character of the days of Noah looks an awful lot like the character of end times. Can we all agree on that? this morning. And of course, I think like in the days of Noah, even now, we're starting to hear the rumblings, the murmuring of people say, well, where is this God that you're talking about? A lot of believers have been on the airwaves saying, Jesus is coming soon. I mean, I am a product of the 70s. And I remember being in elementary school, hearing that Jesus was coming soon. So loudly, in fact, that I was at the altar every Sunday crying and repenting to make sure that if he came that night, I was okay. Like, you just felt like he's coming, you know? It's been a few few uh, decades since then. I'm like late 20s now, but more now than ever, I can almost hear the trumpet. More now than ever, I can see biblical prophecy converging. The times of the end, what scripture says the end is going to look like, I can see it laying one on top of the other. And in 2020, my radar went up because I was already a a fan of biblical prophecy. But then, uh, actually, when did Abraham Accords, when was that announced? January 17th? I have it written in my Bible. It's January, February, March, somewhere in 2020. I was in my pool and swimming in my pool, and I was listening to news on my phone, and I heard that, and the hair on my neck stood up, and I said, we're in the end times, baby. That was the first time in, in my life that I was like, okay, I, something's going on here. And then a, a pandemic rolls around the, the whole world, and, and we see lockdowns, and we see the economy instability, and we see the the wheat markets, and I could go on and on and on and on with the signs that are slowly coming. Now, in 2020, I would have thought that Jesus was coming within 30 days. I really, really, I was like, oh, nope, he's coming. You don't buy any green bananas, because he is coming. That was my philosophy. But alas, we're still here. I know he ain't come yet, because I'm still here. And you're still here. When he comes, it's not going to be a parsing of the the good Christians and the mediocre. Like if you are in faith in Jesus Christ in a twinkling of an eye, you're going to transition from mortal to immortal and you're going to be raptured away and caught up in glory if you are hidden in Christ. And I know he's not come yet because you're still here. You're still here. So he hasn't come yet. But there is coming a day and we're getting close and And so we get to look at the days of Noah and the days of today and see how things are beginning to overlap. But that's not really my sermon today, but that would make a great sermon. My sermon today is the life cycle of judgment. 
Because I think this strange text that is so controversial and debated for generations is such a good look into judgment. So my first question that I want to ask is, what conditions provoke God's judgment? What conditions provoke God's judgment? I know we are products of the New Testament, and our, one of our famous verses is, mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't say mercy replaces judgment. Mercy is just more powerful than judgment. God is a God who judges. You know why? Because he's a God of justice. You can't have justice without judgment. Can you imagine going to court. All, all the court systems in Austin, Texas alone, if we all had our court date and we went in there and we stated our case, but justice was never, never served because there was never a judgment. When you go before a court, you expect there to be a, a judgment because judgment is justice. I know, we're, we're kind of taught in, uh, you know, cozy Christianity that justice is really just about handing water to people that are thirsty, handing food to people that are hungry, building homes for the homeless. And that is all biblical and God-centered stuff to do. But it's not justice. That's just the nature of God, loving people and treating them well and serving them. Justice, there, there is no social justice. Biblical justice involves judgment. But we don't want to talk about that. Because Jesus came and judgment is over. I'm here to tell you that there is coming a day where God is going to judge the world by fire, just like he did by water. And the gap between the water and the fire is not a different God. It is a God of justice who is all right handing out judgment. I know, I hate that part too. I love the love. I love the mercy. I love the favor and the hashtag blessed and all of that. But if we're going to take that, we have to take judgment. You, you want me to preach the full counsel of God? Can I get an amen? What conditions provoke God's judgment? We see what conditions provoke God's judgment in our text. The first thing is estrangement from God. As humanity moves through human history on planet Earth in these early chapters of Genesis, we're only six chapters into the creation of the world, guys. A lot has happened in six chapters and in these early chapters, there is a gradual going away from God. I mean, we move from a garden where people are walking with God and talking with God to six chapters later, God is saying, what have I done? A lot has happened in six chapters. And we see estrangement from God being one of the initial reasons why judgment is coming. Judgment hasn't come yet in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, but it's coming and we know it's coming because there is a separation of people from God. There is a, a turning of our attitudes, a turning of our heart, a turning of our affection, a turning of our patterns and thought processes from God. There is an, an estrangement from God. If you're married in the room, then you certainly know that feeling where, and I'm just speaking to the guys right now, 
you, you sense that you're disconnected from your spouse. Like you wake up one morning and something's different. And you think, what have I done? You, you don't know what it is, but you just know, uh, she didn't say good morning like she normally does. Oh, she didn't close that bathroom door before turning on the light. She doesn't mind waking me up this morning. Not that my wife does that. But you know what I mean. There's just like that. She's ticked right now. She ain't showing it. And that's even more scary. But something is off. Any, any guys can relate? Now, I know there's a lot of fear in the room right now to raise your hand. Admit. My wife is like, don't you do it. That's what I would call estrangement. In every, this is not in my notes, but it's worth saying, in every couple, there is a, a keeper of the thermometer of the relationship. There is one, it's, it's oftentimes the wife, but not always, sometimes it's, it's the man. And they have insight into the connectivity of the relationship ahead of the other person. So they know, if in our relationship, let's take a poll. Who thinks in my... Re- no, I, I don't want to take a poll. I, thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you. My wife is the keeper of... That. What, what's the real term for that? Keeper... It, I can't remember the term, but this is fine. Keeper of the thermometer. Like, you get to read the temperature, you know? So you know that the marriage is growing cold... Attachment, my wife says. You understand the attachment level and the connectivity long before your spouse does. This is why I said it's often the woman, because us guys are clueless. We think everything is fine, and it's really not fine. But they have to let us know. Sometimes it's the men. So woman, women, if you're clueless, it's okay. I understand. There, there is a keeper, and, and you understand, like, Trouble in marriage, you don't just wake up one day going from happily married and totally connected to the next morning, there's trouble in the, in the camp. Do you know what I mean? It's not just a switch like oh, we were happily married yesterday, but today we're getting divorced. It's a slow fade, a slow fade of inattention, a slow fade of not being intentional with one another, a slow fade of not communicating effectively. A slow fade of just being irresponsible, not being generous with your gestures. It's a, it's a slow fade, and, and one person feels it before the other person generally. So you need to find out who that is in your relationship. And when they come to you and they say, something's off, listen to them. Trust them. Believe that they care about the relationship. They care about the marriage, and, and they feel it. And if, even if you feel like there's nothing wrong, just trust them. Listen, this has saved my marriage multiple times when my wife has come to me and said, something's off. And I'm like, no, okay, tell me more. I'll lean into that. I'll, I'll give you more FaceTime. I'll, I'll get you more flowers. I'll, what, what, tell me what I need to do right now so that we're more connected. Because estrangement is no fun. Now, that's not judgment. You stay estranged long enough and that grows in your marriage. There will be a time you go to court and there is a judgment on the matter. Do you see how estrangement leads to judgment? Men have gradually, men and women, humanity has gradually moved away from God throughout the generations. 
this alienation from God on the planet up until the time of Noah has come in spite of God's efforts. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't just turn his back on them. He continued to pursue them. He continued to love Cain and Abel. And even when Cain did something wrong and he killed his brother, even in the middle of that judgment, God released mercy in the situation. And then we see God pursuing Enoch, his best friend, and they're walking and talking, and he, he raptures Enoch. He, he was there one day, and the next he wasn't. God just took him. God was like, he's my best friend. I just want him with me. Because God is pursuing humanity. And then we've got Noah. The Bible says he was righteous, he was blameless, and he was close to God. And God is pursuing Noah even in a time when society was out of control. Specifically, nothing in their hearts but evil. But God pursued Noah. God has tried to establish that fellowship by giving mankind hope, and a promise since Genesis 3, 15. You know, when, when Adam and Eve fell, and it was because of the serpent and all, all of the stuff in the garden, there was a promise in Genesis 3, 15 that God said that he was going to crush the head of the serpent with the woman's seed. Do you remember that? That was, a, that was a merciful promise given to us at the height of our rebellion. God is basically saying, I'm drawing you back home. From you, for even from little old broken you, there's going to be a seed that I'm going to use to crush the heel of Satan. And that was a, a promise that they held on to because God is relentlessly running after humanity. Even when we choose estrangement. But in spite of all God's reaching out in kindness to establish relationships with people, Instead, we find a falling away from God. That's what our text says. We find people falling away from God. I wonder if you've asked God lately how he feels about your relationship with him. I'm not asking you how you feel. You probably feel okay. You probably feel good. You probably think, oh, I could do a little bit more. Have you ever asked Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, how do you feel about my connection with you? Because he is the keeper of the thermometer in your relationship. Well, we shouldn't be trying to judge how close, or how far we are from God. Let him tell us, hey, I need you to come back home. Hey, I need you to lean back in. I need you to trust me right now. Hey, I, you're whining a bit too much. You have little faith. Step into my promises right now. Let him tell us how far or how close we are because we don't want to be estranged from God because estrangement leads to judgment. The life cycle of judgment. There's a second condition that provoked God to initiate judgment in our text. And it starts talking about sons of God and daughters of men, and they mate, and they produce Nephilim, giants or fallen ones. And we see this is a big thing that kind of rattles God's cage. This is really stoking the, the embers of judgment, and he's preparing his wrath because of point number two, the breakdown of God's design for marriage. 
the breakdown of God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage, by the way, let's just all understand that if you are a believer in Jesus, then you believe that God's word is true. You believe that it is inspired by God. You believe it is, in, these are prerequisites to call yourself a Christian. You believe that this is inerrant. You believe that this is infallible. You believe that this is true. You believe that this reigns supreme. Okay, as a Christian, you must believe that marriage was created by God, not government. It was in the garden before government was ever established. And I bless government. I pray for government officials. I pray for party leaders of, of all types because, listen, people, people need Jesus. Right? I don't, I don't just pray for the political party I, I happen to like. I pray for everyone because leadership stinks. Leadership is hard. I pray for everyone. But I'm not even talking politics. I'm talking Bible. God created marriage. I don't get to redefine what God has already defined. That's just biblical. This is actually fundamental Christianity 101. And unfortunately, we've created a culture where we've taken God and created God in our image rather than allowing him to create us in his. But we know that when we redefine marriage, the breakdown of God's design for marriage. Oh, and by the way, for anyone that thinks I'm just talking about like homosexual marriage or something, I'm talking about husbands not honoring their wives too. I'm talking about women who aren't there for their family and don't know what mutual submission looks like too. I'm talking about the man or the woman who works 80 hours a week to make money because you think that's valuable and important, but you're not honoring the marriage. God's design for marriage. So let's not allow our political persuasions to assume this sermon is about something we can say amen to. Let's understand this sermon is about something we should be saying oh my to. The breakdown of God's design for marriage. Not only is his design for marriage for one man and one woman, but also that the man and woman might be in fellowship with him. When marriage was first made, it was between two people who knew God. Two people and God. A triangle, if you will. A man, a woman, and God. And here's the beautiful thing. Can you picture that triangle? There's God. Here's a man. Here's a woman. As the men and women get closer to God, they get closer to each other. Do you see the beauty in that? Marriage was always intended as a three-way covenant between man, woman, and God. Which is why the church heavily believes that if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't get to date the world and win the Christ while you're married to them. <sighs> Did that make sense? You have to marry someone that's already saved, biblically. I mean, you don't have to. You can do what you want. We do all the time. We do what we want all the time because we think we know better than God. But if we want to live scripturally, then we will marry someone that already knows God. The breakdown of God's design for marriage. Sons of God married daughters of women, multiple daughters of women, and they created giants. Now, here's where the debate comes in. I'm out of time, but I'm going to... 
I'm going to tell you quickly, there are three ways to view this passage. Do you want to hear it? One is sensational. I, I don't want to tell you what I think. This one is pretty amazing. It's awesome. Sons of God refers to, this is one view, one view. This is not the view, it's one view. Sons of God rever, refers to like fallen angels. Right? Uh, we see in multiple places in Scripture uh, that sons of God talks about angelic beings and because Nephilim refers to fallen ones. It's potential that in the days before Noah that demons, fallen angels, liked women, and they mated with women. In fact, Jude tells us that they left their place of abode, and that's one reason why many demons are in chains today. They'll be released for judgment, but they're in chains today. And, and some people believe that because they left their spiritual place to mate with women, and as a result were giants in the land, that they're now locked up in chains. Uh, some people say that this is really a key, theologically, uh, key theological issue uh, because Satan has tried to destroy women's seed. You remember that promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said, through your seed, I'm going to crush the head of Satan? Well, the enemy has tried to find a way to corrupt the seed of women. And he did that, according to view one, with fallen angels mating with women. And that's why God had to destroy the entire earth because DNA had been corrupted. And since that time, the enemy still tries to and continues to try to corrupt the DNA of mankind because he understands, women, that even though Jesus has been born, God is still crushing the head of Satan through the seed of humanity because God is using you to do his will on planet earth. Uh, that's view number one, that we've got demonic entities having sex with humans. Um, I will tell you that that is, that is a belief that I have, or maybe still do, hold. Okay, I think that it can be biblically backed up. That is one view, at least. Another view is that the sons of God and the women or the daughters of men refers to two lines of people. So the daughters of, or the... Uh, Lineage of Seth, they were godly, they were, they were honoring God, loving God, and then they were always told to marry within their faith, just like Scripture tells us all throughout the New Testament to be not be unequally yoked and the like. Well, these men from Seth's line decided they wanted to marry outside of their tribe, outside of their faith, and so they came over here, they saw these daughters these daughters of man, the reason they called daughters of man because they were fleshly men, sinful men, and they came from the line of Cain. I think this is reasonable, at least scripturally, I could back it up because in Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5, we see the lineage of Seth, then we see the lineage of uh, Cain, and it would make sense that chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is tacked on to chapter 5, and it's a conclusion. Uh, but if that were the case, and it might be the case, that underscores even more the importance of God's design for marriage. Like the sensational aspect of demons having sex with women like that, that's like, yeah, kill them all, Lord. 
Just take out the world. That makes a whole lot of sense. But if it's as subtle as a lineage of people marrying outside of their faith, and God says, I regret it. I regret ever having made them because they can't even hold to one simple thing. This first institution I created called marriage, they can't even follow that simple thing. I just want to get rid of them all. That's, that's another perspective. And then there's a third that I'm not going to really talk about because I've never, well, I, I might have held this belief. Um, but it's referring to the nobility at the time. The nobility at the time were not generous leaders. They came in and wrecked villages and it was not good. And they were sons of God. God meaning um, power. Sons of power. People of power. The nobility. And, and they were mating with women and creating giants. Not tall people, but men of wealth and means that carried on and perpetuated the cycle of abuse. And God said, I'm going to end it all. During this period of time, God sees it happening in Genesis 6, verse 3. He says something peculiar. He says, my spirit will not reside with man forever. He is flesh. (laughs) Man had drifted so far from God. And when you and I were created, we had a mandate to be an image bearer of Christ. Body, soul, spirit. I am to reflect Christ. I am to look like God. But God says, I've drifted so far from him. They've drifted so far from him. They no longer even look like him in the spirit. They are only flesh. Oh, God. God, let me not drift so far from you that your spirit is not recognizable inside of me. That I may be called a man of flesh only. The breakdown of marriage. And the third point is the corruption of moral and spiritual life. We know the days of Noah, the Bible says in Genesis 6:11, that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. Jesus says they were eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. Some people like to say that the days of Noah is just life as usual. They were eating, they were drinking, they were being given in marriage. What I believe it's really saying in Genesis is. They were going through the motions of life, but God was very far from them. There's nothing wrong with eating. There's something wrong with eating alone. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's something wrong with drinking alone. There's nothing wrong with getting married, being given in marriage, and receiving a bride, but there's a problem doing it alone. All of these things in life should be done together and and when we're estranged from God and our view of covenant starts to get flaky then there is a corruption of moral and spiritual elements in our life we're not praying as much we're not reading the word we're not leaning into what God is doing 
These are the three things that led to judgment. So I don't know if you recognize any of these in your own life. I sure do recognize there have been seasons in my own life where I've been estranged from God or I've not valued the marriage covenant like I should have and, and made the marriage the priority over other things or or maybe there's morality and spiritual life is slipping. Maybe I, I don't wake up as early and I don't do my devotions or I don't do this or that. And it's not about doing. It's not. It's about a heart posture. These things are leading to judgment. So my next question that I asked, what is God's attitude in light of these conditions? So if we're talking about the life cycle of judgment, Michael, it would be good to know not just what leads to judgment, but what's God's attitude about it? How does he feel? Because I'm pretty certain that most of us in the room, when we talk about judgment and God, we just picture a big club, a big stick, or like Zeus sitting on a big golden chair and lightning going from the cloud to right where you're sitting. But what is God's attitude about these conditions? We see it in our text. The first thing we see is his patience. He's not quick to judge. He's, he's patient. 1 Peter 3.20 says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, God's patience lingered in the days of Noah. At a time when all of planet Earth thought evil thoughts except for only one person, Noah, and his wife, and his three sons and their brides, eight people in about population estimates vary, but... Seven billion people pre-flood, most likely. About the population of almost of today's world. We're sitting at about eight billion people on planet Earth right now. So it was about this time when God judged it before. <laughs> oh, Lord, give us, give us a seven-day warning like you did before, Lord. Eight people. Only eight people were worthy of a relationship with him, wanted a relationship with him. Yet our God was patient. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And some of us in the room wonder, God, why won't you just judge the world? God, I'm tired of holding on. Why don't you just come back and, and judge the world? Give, give those people what they want. They want to ignore you. They just want control. Give it to them, God. But God says, I'm holding out for one more soul. I'm holding out for one more person because my love is patient. I'm long-suffering. It's in my nature. I can't change it. And those of us this morning who are ready for God to set things right in society. <laughs> I know. I know. I've been there too. Until I realize that if I'm asking God to set things right in society, I need to remember that when he does, he'll also set things right with me. So we pray for God's patience to continue. The second attitude he had just before judgment was grief. That's how God feels as he looks at the world. It's not anger. 
It's not frustration. It's actually not regret. That word has been mistranslated. He was sorry that he made men. He was, he was sad. He was grieved. His heart became heavy. Before God ever takes the action of judgment, whether it's here with Noah or later in the Old Testament with the prophets or in the New Testament at the end of the age, God's judgment is always preceded by grief and grief should be within us too. We got too many Christians getting ticked off at the world. Why don't you cry for them? Why are you so angry? Why aren't you weeping like Jesus wept when he entered Jerusalem because he understood that Jerusalem was rejecting him? Where are the tears, church? We've got the anger down. Can we just cry a little? Can we just grieve? Can we lament for a world who if God judges us today, A lot of people are spending eternity in hell. That's a big deal. He's going to make the world right someday. And I'm going to be on the right side of history, as are you. But until then, we weep. We cry out for the mercy of God to capture the hearts of men and women who are estranged from him in this moment. We we weep because God created and went through grief before judgment. Two final points and I'm going to let you go. In the life cycle of judgment, God makes a provision always that his judgment against sin might be escaped. God judges individuals, God judges nations, and God judges the globe, all very differently. You might be a believer of Jesus Christ and find yourself in a nation that's receiving judgment from God, but there is a a promise to you that there is a way of escape. That's good news. I mean, I pray for my country, but let's admit, it's crazy. I believe that judgment is coming from the throne of heaven to the lands of America, not just America, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova. I would say a lot more. My mind is just, my geography has totally slipped from my vocabulary, but you get the point. Every nation is going to encounter the judgment of God. But there's a promise to you. Revelation 3.10 and it's talking to the churches in the end of days. Revelation 3.10 promises you since you have kept my command to endure patiently. God loves patience. I hate that. I mean, I love that. I love that when I'm on the receiving end of his patience, but when he calls me to look like him, that kind of stinks because it involves patience. And I learned a long time ago, don't pray for patience. You pray for patience, 
He's going to give you something to be patient about. Revelation 3.10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. God is going to keep you from the fire. God is going to keep you from the judgment because you've endured patiently. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells you that you are not appointed to wrath. Now, I'm, I am grateful that I am not appointed to endure God's wrath because I don't have enough sunscreen for the fire that is going to fall on planet Earth when God's wrath is poured out. Can I get a good amen? God makes a provision that his judgment against sin might be escaped. Judgment. Judgment may be coming to America, but judgment can still be escaped. There's a way. Judgment might be coming to your home, but judgment can still be escaped. God has made a way. Judgment might be coming to you, but there is a way of escape. You've been feeling the estrangement. You, you've, you've been wrestling with the covenant issues of the Lord. All of these things are lining up and you're like, judgment is next. It's not too late. There is a way of escape. You know the ark that they got on was not a navigable boat. You couldn't navigate it. There was no rudder. There's no steering mechanism. It was designed to float, not to steer. Your escape doesn't have a steering wheel on it for you to take control of. <laughs> I know you keep trying to make plans of how you're going to earn God's attention and you're going to earn his favor. But this story lets us land in the lap of Jesus and understand that Jesus is the ark. And the world may be crazy around us, but God has created a way of escape. And then finally, my last point, judgment comes. That's the life cycle of judgment. Now, I have to just explain as before I let you go why I had two titles. I said the life cycle of judgment was my title and I just gave you the life cycle of judgment. But the second title, my favorite one was How Love Works. Because what the world wants to do, they want to look at that last point, judgment comes and they highlight on judgment comes and they highlight on judgment. But the life cycle of judgment is really about a God who is pursuing you. A God who is extending mercy and grace to you. A God who knows your name, who knows your weakness, he knows your faults, and he's been chasing after you. Yeah, you've been estranged, and he's missed you. Yeah, you've defiled the covenants, and he's ready to forgive you. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've done all the things, the, the moral things, you've made bad decisions, you've made some mistakes in your life and your spiritual life is really lacking. Yeah, God knows. He knows you better than you know yourself, but God is still calling you to himself. This is how love works. You pursue and you pursue and you pursue. God is giving some of you this morning a chance to say yes to his pursuit. Will you bow your head and close your eyes?
There is coming a day when God will judge the world. But until then, he's calling you home. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make it look like you've got everything together. He just, he wants to call you his own. If you're here this morning, And you focused on the final point of judgment coming, but you've, you've just failed to miss all the little signs that God has just been planting in your heart just to let you know that he loves you, that he made you, he created you, he's got a plan and a purpose and a destiny for you. And you're ready to say yes to Jesus. You're ready to just give him your all, to surrender 100%. You're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Will you just lift your hand and wave at me so I know who I'm praying for? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? You're ready to be all in. Ready to be all in. Thank you. Will you stand to your feet, church? So we're going to say a prayer for the people that raise their hand to say yes to Jesus this morning and for those that are watching online and you're making that decision. There is no formula. It's a simple heart posture. Church, will you just put your hand over your heart in support of everyone that raised their hand this morning? Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. I believe that he died on the cross, he was placed in the grave, and he rose on the third day, and he's coming again. Father, please forgive me of my sin. From this moment forward, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a child of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate this morning? Well, I'm going to send you out with one fun fact about Noah. You know, when he built the ark, God brought the animals and he put in about, uh, he was, I think, 400. He was about, no, 480, 480 years old when God told him to start the ark. And it was finished when he was about 600 years. So there was a 120-year warning. So it took him a while to build the boat, I suppose. And when he was 600 years old, the rain started to come. The earth had never seen rain up until that point. But I find it interesting that when they loaded the ark and the door was shut, um, Noah had to build the ark. He didn't have to get the animals, but he did have to collect all the food. He had to get all the food that was going to be needed. So that's some encouragement to us that even in some difficult times of our life, God still expects you to work. <laughs> God still expects you to be smart with your money. God still expects you to not waste your food kind of thing. You know, like I know inflation is high and products are getting limited and they don't have my favorite cereal and all of that. But um, I'm probably not going to just sit at the table and pray and my favorite cereal is going to appear. I might actually have to do some legwork to feed myself. So uh, I just want to let you know that if you want to feed yourself today, 
at one of my favorite restaurants, I'll go with you. <laughs> Chewies. No, I'm just kidding. Father, bless your people. I thank you so much for our people who are passionate for you, who are walk in obedience and build the ark and gather the food, but trust that you're going to bring in the provision of the animals and you're going to keep us safe in the storm. God, just let us throughout this next week identify any disparities in our relationship with you any deltas any distance god i ask you draw us close to you in jesus name i pray let the church say amen we'll see you wednesday 6 30 p.m for awaken i send you out with a blessing today be blessed in jesus name and now that you've been to church go be the church